Listener-supported KFUO invites you to listen live to our annual share It's your opportunity to show your support to KFUO. If you can't join us live, please prayerfully consider supporting us by calling 314-996-1518 and asking about our giving levels. You can also click the Give Now button on our webpage. share 2017, April 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Good afternoon, Universe, and welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition. Breaking down the stronghold, bad opinions, and false notions of the enemy, and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are studying Christian dogma. Devoted to the belief that when God speaks, he does so in order that we speak his word back to him. Just as St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth, to watch your life and doctrine closely, to persevere in them, For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. You, however, Christian, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. On the journey today, I have with me as my guest, Flying Lone Wolf, Pastor Samuel Schulteis of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach, California. Lover of all things fantasy fiction, Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, and the like. And uh, theologian extraordinaire, I believe. I'm going to be talking about Dr. Francis Pieper's Dogmatics Volume 1. We're going to be picking up around page 20. Oh, did I get it right? Nope, I'm on the wrong page. Around page 23, bottom of the page, where Dr. Pieper's going to start talking about Roman Catholic theology. But first, uh, Samuel, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be back on with you, Jonathan. Glad to be with you. The last few weeks, Dr. Pieper has been insisting, first and foremost, on the idea that there are just two religions in the entire world. The one of the law, the one of works, the one of man trying to save himself, and uh, the one of the gospel, the one of grace, the one of mankind needing a savior, and that savior being Jesus Christ. He has then also taught us that whenever we see divisions in the church, these divisions are only caused by the false teaching, that the the true teaching, the gospel, doesn't divide. The Word of God doesn't divide, it unites. But when people bring in a little leaven, that always has the effect of, well, as the lump is leavened, dividing. And he, he talks about how, you know, we shouldn't be surprised to see this happening in the false religions of the world, of course, because they're always trying to justify themselves with the law. They're never going to be succeeding, so they always got to try something new, so they got to start a new religion. What's strange, or you might think would be strange, is that you see this also in the church, that various traditions of Christianity kind of replace the gospel with the law, and so wandering off on that track to end up dividing the church a bit. And now today he's going to start really looking at more narrowly what those groups are. And it's important as we start off that we, we, we recognize we're not saying there's no Christians in these groups, but that there is certainly within Christianity division, and that division can only be caused by one thing, false teaching. And if you don't believe you have the false teaching, what, or the, right, the true teaching, what are you doing? And then if you're not going to try to unify based on sharing that teaching and looking at the scriptures, again, what, what are you doing? Any thoughts on all that, you know, context-wise before we dig in, Sam? Yeah, I think uh, as I was reading over some of the pages, one of the other uh, helpful books that uh, at least came to mind going through it uh, that uh, Religious Bodies of America. It's a little bit of an older book, uh, you know, early 20th century uh, by F.E. Mayer. Uh, I think Concordia Publishing House still may publish it. Um, yeah, they do. At, at any rate, uh, it, that's kind of a useful thing because he does a similar thing to what Peeper does here in these opening pages of 
uh, this particular section where he goes through each of the main church bodies in America, meaning Christian ones, uh, and looks at their you know their formal principle. What's the source of their theology? What's the what's the authority uh, that they appeal to? And then he looks at the material principle for each. You know, what's what's the center? What's the main thing that makes each church body tick? And uh, you know, Pieper draws attention to that in a number of places, and uh, it, it's a good, helpful focusing tool. I've used that with our youth at a couple of different times, and we've talked about you know just this question: Why are there so many different denominations around? Why are there so many different Christians who believe so many different things and yet still claim to be Christian? It can be it can be a bit of a challenging thing for our own members and friends and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, as it can also be a source of you know, criticism from outside the church, too. So it's an important discussion uh, to have. Yeah, I, I found that book, Religious Bodies of America, to be stunning when I when I first had to read it for, I think I think the class at seminary was something like, you know, religious denominations or, or something along mm-hmm. those lines. And yeah, I remember also hearing one. people, people spoke negatively of the book. Like, they, they thought it wasn't very helpful, and I just couldn't believe how how helpful it was to have in clarity why we disagree between these various bodies, not condemning them outright as as heretics, um, although he does get into the sex, you know, Mormonism and whatnot a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But but to be able to just have it on paper, look, here's the differences. Let's own the differences and recognize that only one of us can be right. Otherwise, we're just going to kind of live in falsehood all the time. Yeah, it does no good to to treat it like a, uh, you know, Baskin 31 flavors. Everybody has their own favorite, you know, type of ice cream that they like, and let's just all get along. It, it, it's good to find agreement where we have true, genuine agreement, but then, yeah, let's be honest about the differences we do have. And uh, I think uh, Mayer does a good job, and so does uh, Pieper in this opening section here, about quoting their own theologians. He, he's not trying to put up a straw man, uh, neither of these guys. They're not trying to you know, paint, uh, paint a false picture of it. They're just trying to show you, look, this is what's on the books of their official theological teaching. Yeah, not everybody in that church body is going to believe it, and we would probably say, that's a good thing. But here's what they believe that's on their official doctrine, confessions, you know, uh, council uh, kinds of statements. Right. And, and this will be important, especially today, as we look at, at the very least, at uh, a quote he has from the Council of Trent, which remains to this day kind of the reason why it doesn't matter what the Pope says right now about, you know, unity. Uh, this council still is on the books as official teaching. And what it says is, well, it's troubling to say the least. I'm going to pick up. With the, the last phrase we looked at last time and then lead into the, the, his bit on Roman Catholic, Catholicism as a body, but where he says at the end of, of the section, page 23, the attempt to get rid of the word of the apostles and of the central teaching of Christianity, the doctrine of salvation by grace, has been and still is the sole cause of divisions in the Christian church. And even if you're like, if you're in a congregation and you're like, well, that didn't divide us, what divided us was the carpet color. We, we voted over the carpet color, and we split the church. Well, then, what you did was you made the carpet color more important than the Word of God. And so it yeah, still was the same error. Yeah, there's always going to be a void, right? Uh, it's, uh, you know, replace the true teaching with something else, whether it's, yeah, your favorite carpet color or whether you should have donuts or coffee on Sunday or tea and crumpets or something. You know, whatever it's going to be, you're replacing something, uh, you know, replacing the Word of God with something else, you know, whether it's another false word or, or your own word or whatever, yeah. Well, idols are always things that are made of the creation, and they're good as they're made, right? It takes a good thing to make an idol. True, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's that abuse of God's creation, turning it, you know, something we either worship or misuse uh, or abuse that God has given us that originally was good, and then we in our sinful fallen humanity uh, do what do what sinners like to do, and that's to make it all about ourselves. 
So the reason he's now going to talk about Roman Catholic theology is not just to bash the Roman Catholics. Oh, get the Papists. Let's get some pitchforks. Go get them. He wants to prove his point that where the division exists between the Reformation and Rome, it is a matter of where the Reformation clings to Scripture and Rome asserts a different authority. And that's where we are divided. But where we agree, well, that's where Scripture tends to remain. So on Doctrine of the Trinity, things like that. So mm-hmm. picking up at the bottom of 23 then, you know, point one or, or, or example one of the divisions in, the, in Christianity based upon man's thinking rather than on the word. He says, the Roman Catholic body, the largest in Christendom, acknowledges in principle the divine authority of Scripture. But it sets Scripture aside by insisting that its sense can be ascertained only through the interpretation given by the Roman Catholic Church, that is, in the last analysis, the Pope. So it's not that Roman Catholics say, away with Scripture, we don't believe it. They No, quite the opposite. They say, yes, Scripture, we trust the Scriptures, but only as understood by the ruling body of the church, the College of the Cardinals, and ultimately as taught by the Pope himself. You, little layperson, you are not allowed to just go read the scriptures by yourselves and think you can come up with something. The authority of the Pope is ultimately which binds them together. That might seem extreme, but he's going to give an example in a minute. But do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I think that's one of the main things that Lutherans uh, and and Catholics have in in difference. And a lot of people will come and ask us, because we have a Roman Catholic church across the street here, and so people just see it visibly, or they walk by, or they walk into the church and say, hey, what's, what's the difference between you guys and the Roman Catholics across the street? You guys look, you know, kind of similar. Your church services seem, you know, fairly, uh, you know, familiar to us uh, on a Sunday morning. I said, yeah, there, there's a lot of good reasons for that, and, and we can explain, you know, Luther's conservative reformation with that in mind. But I, I always draw them and draw their attention to a couple things, first of which is uh, the solas that are on our church sign, and sola scriptura is one. And and while Roman Catholicism talks about Scripture a great deal, and we can commend them for that, uh, we also have to look at the other part of their formal principle. Their appeal to authority comes from, you know, yeah, the Roman Curia, and even reason to an extent. And then also, uh, finally, you know, the, the opinions and the statements of the Pope. And that's where then, especially Luther, um, like in the small cult articles, when he was battling with this and preparing for a church council between the Lutherans and the Romans, um, attacked attacked the the Roman Church for their adherence to that. Um, it, it was a dangerous thing to set something else in addition to Scripture uh, alongside that. Now, if there is a place that Peeper maybe makes an intuitive leap and doesn't, doesn't prove his point, it's the jump from the Holy Mother Church being the interpreter to the Pope being the interpreter. And you really do need to go into a, a deeper doctrinal study of Roman Catholicism to, to understand that. But what he does do, and he's going to show right out of the Council of Trent, which stands, councils cannot err in Roman Catholic theology. They can't make mistakes, even though Vatican II certainly does seem to overturn a few things in Trent, and that's a, that's a paradox in its own right. But it still stands in the Council of Trent, this, I'm going to quote verbatim, quote, it, the holy sacred synod, decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of the Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scriptures to his own senses, presume to interpret the sacred scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of Holy Scripture, hath held and doth hold." End quote. Uh, Tridentium, session four, decretum de eti, my, my Latin's pretty bad, editione et usus sacramum librorum. So, Sounds good to me. Yeah. You 
cannot, as a human being, read the Bible and understand it by yourself. That's effectively what that said. It's impossible. So Luther, reading through the book of Romans, finding justification by grace through faith, very clearly spelled out there also in Galatians, he's wrong because the tradition of the church says so, which is doubly interesting to me, Sam, in that the Lutherans argue from the tradition of the church, too, in our confessions. We argue that the church fathers are on our side. Uh, but right, yet, yet right. you know, the, the point being, you know, the Bible's not clear enough as it stands. And that is a, that's a massive statement. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. To say that it's, uh, you know, like, like a window that you need to, to have somebody come along and, and polish it up for you, namely. And here he is, by the way. This is the, I suppose, in, in part, maybe some of the appeal from, from folks um, in the Roman Catholic Church to say, well, yeah, they have somebody that interprets it for them. Uh, the problem is where that that puts it puts the Pope in the place of Christ, as was one of the main charges of the Lutherans against the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the time of the Reformation, and, and still is today. And uh, it also then sidelines uh, the individual Christian from, from hearing and receiving the Word, too. Well, you certainly have something today where the, the current Pope seems to be saying things differently than the last Pope, Right. Yeah, true. Yeah, he uh, he's gotten himself in, I guess, some you know some hot water with uh, lots of folks who want maybe more of the old, give me some of that old time religion kind of thing, um, or or some that like it too because it it, it appears that he's more uh, amenable to to change. Um, that could just be that he uses vague language and nobody understands though. Well, the, the Pope definitely does use vague language these days, or he is easily misunderstood, perhaps by a media that wants him to be misunderstood, pushing their own agendas, those kinds of things. But it kind of betrays the real issue here, was, is that if you have a, a living voice that's allowed to say this is what's true, and a history of that voice changing what is true, it gets harder and harder to believe what it actually says is true. Oh, and I just remembered another thought I had, uh, which is you were saying how some Roman Catholics will, will really find it appealing that, well, but if the Pope says this and the Church says this and tradition says this, then we'll, we can have unity. And you out there with your sola scriptura, what we see is a divided Protestantism that is just all over the place because everyone's with their Bible making up whatever they want. And there's some some truth to the fact that there are people out there taking the Bible, making up whatever they want, but there's not a lot of truth to Rome being a unified body. It seems monolithic from the outside, but there's all variety of teaching going on under there. Are you familiar with any of that, or is that a... Uh, a, a little bit, not uh, only only by personal experience in terms of, you know, the different Roman Catholic churches I've visited, whether, you know, it's on vacation when it's the only gig in town, or just from members that have friends or family that have gone to churches and, you know, relayed their stories uh, to me or other firsthand experiences. So, I mean, sometimes even just in Southern California, you know, it's like the the Forrest Gump version. It's like the box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get it when you go walking into any given church. You know, this is true of LCMS churches, unfortunately, uh, but it's also true of Roman Catholic churches today, too, that you could find, you could walk into one place that's, you know, straight out of trend, and you could walk into another place that almost seems more like a, you know, mainline Protestant church with a few Roman Catholic trappings around, too. So it, I, I've noticed that at least, you know, anecdotally. So it's not like the Pope has instit- has has unified Rome in its material principle so much as institutionally, the formal principle. So you have people will teach all manner of things. The one thing they do agree on, though, is that the Pope is the head of the Church. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Uh, it's, uh, it's unity, at least, like you said, on the surface, 
but underneath, it's not really any different uh, other than the fact they don't have official names for denominations. I should add that I have also always heard them, when it comes down to it, if they got to preach something, they're going to preach the law. If they got to preach uh, something from the text of Jesus, it's not going to be Jesus Christ for you. It's going to be uh, now do this. I remember in North Dakota that when I first got called there, I had a week where I, I wasn't yet working. So I went and visited the, the local Roman Catholic Church, and uh, there, there were no bones about it. He even went so far as to say, now let us not make the mistake of thinking that we have nothing left to do after this salvation. And, and, he, and he, wow. Yeah, and it, and it was— and it wasn't just, you know, love your neighbor. I mean, it was sort of like, you, you better be careful or you might fall off kind of thing. And it was it was straight up, hey, yep, yeah, he's Roman Catholic in that regard. <laughs> yeah, wow. Sometimes it's, uh, I mean, not that you not you like to hear it, but at least it's refreshing to hear somebody that actually will be honest about admitting where their, you know, where their cards lay. <laughs> well, that, that's fair enough. It up. That's fair but enough. still, it's, it, yeah, deadly stuff, though. So, uh, people are now... Quote, commenting on this bit from the Council of Trent, uh, where they say that you, know, you, Christian, you person, really don't have a right to read your Bible and understand it. You have to be told what it means by Holy Mother Church. Pieper says, the inevitable result of thus interpreting Scripture according to the sense of Holy Mother Church, that is to say of the Pope, is that the Romist Church expressly and emphatically anathematizes the central doctrine of the Christian religion, the doctrine of justification by faith in the gospel of grace without deeds of the law. So now he's he's making a case here. He hasn't proved it yet. He's going to prove it with another quote. But he's making the case that once you do this, once you replace Scripture alone with somebody else interpreting Scripture, over time it's inevitable that then the gospel is going to be lost as well. Because you might have somebody who interprets it rightly for several hundred years. In fact, it seems that they did. But then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. along comes somebody who doesn't, and he's got the authority to change the doctrine. Yeah, and if your authority lies in, at least in part, with that authority figure, uh, namely the Pope, and, and what he says, then you know what he says goes, even if what he says goes goes against Scripture. Uh, and that's that's where we find, you know, in especially in the Council of Trent, you know, those kinds of specific words. I, I remember uh, in our several of our doctrine classes at Concordia Irvine, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt would always hammer home the point that at at Rome, in the Council of Trent, they anathematize, they condemn, they say that it is a curse, uh, the gospel, you know, what, what Lutherans hold most dearly of all, uh, in addition to sola scriptura, you know, sola gratia, uh, grace alone. And that is the, the footnote here that Pieper has. I'm going to go ahead and read that. And so if you're listening now and you've kind of tuned in and tuned out, pay attention here to this piece. If you're mad because you think we're bashing the Catholics, pay attention to this piece here. This is the reason that I could never become a Roman Catholic because this stands as dogma to this day in their church. And whether a priest denies it, whether the Pope himself denies it, it remains until it's recanted. There's nothing that we, well, you'll hear, there's nothing that we Lutherans can do but say, you guys need to repent. Here it is. It's from, it's from uh, Tridentium, Session 6, Canon 11, 12, and 20. It says this. If anyone saith that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy— which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is what we thereby are justified, what is that whereby we are justified? 
let him be anathema. If anyone saith that the commandments, excuse me, if anyone saith that the man who is justified and how perfect soever is not bound to observe the commandments of God and of the church, but only to believe, as if indeed the gospel were a bare and absolute promise of eternal life without the condition of observing the commandments, let him be anathema. In other words, if anyone wow. dare hold to the Augsburg Confession, if anyone dare claim to be Lutheran, if anyone dare believe what Paul writes, let him mm-hmm. be anathema. He's, he's going to go to hell. As if the gospel were a bare promise. Oh, my goodness, right? I mean, Yeah, you can, you can tell where they—I mean, they, they took their language for these uh, canons of Trent straight out of the Lutheran writings. I mean, the, the Lutheran words from Scripture are all over the place. Imputation and grace and justified and, you know, divine remittance and all these— all these wonderful, power-packed, gospel, good news words, they just go down one after one and tick them off and say, nope, 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 nope. And like you said, that, that's the main reason why Lutherans and Roman Catholics of this day are, are divided. You know, um, I, I always kind of giggle every time that these, uh, these different church accords or these peace statements come out of the ecumenical movement and say, oh, look, Roman Catholics and Lutherans finally agree. Like, no, they don't. The Lutherans have capitulated something most of the time. Uh, it's not it's not the Roman Catholics who have changed any of their doctrine on their books, because otherwise they'd be out there uh, recanting Trent. And that I, I mean, like Luther in in his day, I don't see that happening in our day either. No, not at all. And, and you, you do got to be careful and notice. It's not that they don't talk about grace. It's not that they don't no, talk about faith. It's not that they don't talk about scripture, but they don't talk about those things as having their own unique solo action. It's not right. grace alone. Right. It's not faith yep. alone. Yeah? Yeah, it's important to know. We, we talk about this in our, well, every class from confirmation on up uh, into our adult Bible class. And, you know, words have meanings, you know, and, and the slippery thing about talking with other Christians uh, sometimes, and even some non-Christians, is when they use words that are similar to ours, like grace or God or Jesus. You know, what what do you mean by those words? So I, we've worked a lot, a lot, uh, and a, and a, and I spent a lot of time on trying to ask questions about when you're talking with somebody about these words, grace, or about Christian. Unpack the jargon. You know, what does it mean? Ask somebody what it means, uh, even if it's just to them. Maybe they can articulate it. Uh, you know, because that way you can try to figure out where you're going in the conversation and how maybe to steer it back to something that really is gospel, not another gospel like Paul Warren's against in Galatians. And if I can do a little leapfrog here before we go to break uh, to the idea of communion fellowship, you know, if somebody says, well, you know, Mm. the Roman Catholics, they believe the body and blood of Jesus is really present on the altar. I know, I know, transubstantiation. They understand it wrong, but they believe it's really there. Why can't I commune with my Roman Catholic family? The answer is because you're excommunicated. <laughs> if you're a yeah. Lutheran and go to a Lutheran church, this text excommunicates you. You need you would before you would commune, you would need to go to that Roman Catholic priest and tell him, "I stand anathematized by the by the the Council of Trent. May I commune?" And if yeah, he right. says yes, well, you should probably go to his bishop and tell his bishop you got a you got a rogue priest going <laughs> yeah, on, you, right? You might want to talk to this guy or <laughs> over there. Yeah, yeah. The other the other part too that I've uh, talked about is uh, that. Uh, at least, again, in, in classic Roman Catholic doctrine and what's on their councils and confessions and things, is uh, you know, the authority of the office of the ministry isn't the same either. They don't think we have it uh, in the same way. So uh, you know, how can we have fellowship with, with that? How could our pastors and priests be doing the same thing if, if there's not that kind of agreement on uh, or unity on um, what's going on in the pastoral office, too? So there's there's a number of levels where that 
that conversation can be had. Yeah, for sure. That, I mean, that's where this whole Pope authority thing comes in. The reason mm-hmm. that we, d- we we don't have the office is because we have not been ordained by the line of bishops that the Pope has approved. And as a result of not having that so-called indelible character put on our, our ordinate, ordained pastors, we therefore are unable to consecrate the sacrament. We don't have the magic juju to make the sacrament right, work. Right. And so we don't even really have the Lord's Supper. We just got bread and wine there on the altar. I mean, it's, it's pretty heady. People get mad at Lutherans. Oh, you condemn everybody. No, we don't we just disagree with everybody uh we yeah. don't condemn them but but they condemn us true yeah true yeah it's uh, like you just read it that's a it's a pretty power-packed paragraph and uh one that yeah gives you a lot of pause like okay well that's like you said that's some heavy stuff I want, to, I want to spend a little more time on that paragraph on the other side of this break. But first, we're going to go ahead and take a break here. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, The Messenger's Good News. I'm your host, Pastor John Fisk, talking with Pastor Samuel Schulteis of Redeemer, Luth- uh, of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach, California. We'll be back in just a minute. So what are you doing the last week of July? How about spending it with a bunch of fellow Lutherans at the 2017 Institute for Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music on the lovely campus of Concordia University, Chicago. You'll be singing, praying, learning, loving, and growing together in the Lord. The Institute is for everyone who's passionate about worship. The theme this year is the Just Live by Faith. Make it plain in sermon, service, song. There'll be a hymn festival, concert by National Lutheran Choir, insightful keynotes by David Peterson, William Swirla, and Kevin Hildebrandt, tons of workshops covering the gamut of worship, and you get to hear Daniel Gard give us the goods on the book of Habakkuk. Yeah, you want to be there. July 25th through 28th. You'll be so glad you did. Register today at www.lcms.org backslash worship institute a long-standing tradition at worldwide kfuo is to broadcast two live worship services for those unable to attend or for those who benefit from hearing god's word online or on kfuo from peace lutheran church in south st louis county missouri senior pastor dennis castens leads the worship service at 8 a.m the live late service at 10:45 comes from hope lutheran church in st Anne, missouri where reverend tim ostermeyer is senior pastor hear the message of mercy and forgiveness during Sunday morning worship on Worldwide KFUO. Trusted, blessed, assurance, delivered, Lutheran, adored, unique, sacred, solid. Those are a few of the words that describe Worldwide KFUO. You can trust KFUO to proclaim the gospel message clearly, distinctively, biblically. In a world of lies, KFUO is all about the truth. Listen daily and you'll hear Christ-focused programs you can trust. We're the messenger of good news. Worldwide KFUO. National Poetry Month is one of the largest literary celebrations in the world. And did you know the Bible contains examples of Hebrew poetry in the books of Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and in the Psalms. And that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, one of the few American writers honored in the Poets' Corner of Westminster Abbey, wrote one of his most famous poems as a reflection on the Bible. Longfellow's Psalm of Life from Genesis 3 became what the Poetry Foundation calls a mainstay of national culture. And it was a poem he wrote that became the basis for the Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. 
His words in its familiar last stanza, a reference to Luke 2.14, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. You've been listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, and KFUO is listener-supported. What we do here at Cross Defense is brought to you by you. And we have Mark Hawkinson in studio from the development department here at KFUO to talk a little bit about that, and he's so excited he can't stop from giggling. Well, that's right, uh, Pastor. Uh, As a matter of fact, I'm giggling because it's a very happy experience there, April 20th through the 22nd, when uh, guests come in familiar voices of pastors that you've known for years. I've been privileged to be a part of the share for maybe, oh, it goes way back to the 1980s. Hmm. So uh, it uh, it has always been a very joyful experience. Uh, we'll have, as I mentioned, your favorite on-air personalities. We'll have a matching gift that people can give to. Uh, you know, we've been on the air since December the 14th, 1924, in our 92nd year of broadcasting, and we've never missed a broadcast hmm because of lack of funds. So we are, as I mentioned, totally listener-supported. We are not a line item on the budget of the LCMS. Uh, so our share this year will feature all these guests. It'll feature uh, special uh, giving levels and premiums, like, for example, a flashlight. I have one in my pocket here. It's blue. It's durable. Uh, it uh, fla- You flash it on the wall. You can use it to uh, for example, find your keyhole when you're, right, when right, you're right. you know, and, and for, for that purpose, it, the, it's very good. The young people today call that swag. Swag? Swag. It's, okay. Yeah, you get that cool thing with the logo on it. So you, you get your own the, KFUO flashlight swag. That's right. Swag. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, uh, yeah that's right. Uh, and also a nifty uh, blue tough uh, cooler for your summertime outings. And uh, uh, it, it, it's, uh, you'll be proud to carry it with you wherever you go. And uh, let's see, in addition to that, we have a special cup that has our logo on it for both hot and cold drinks and a uh, button-down shirt. That uh, is another one of our premiums. So we have wonderful premiums. Become a day sponsor for just $480 a year. It's a great time of fun. If you're local in St. Louis, you can come by the studio, meet the on-air guests, meet the on-air staff, uh, matriculate with them. I like that word there. I don't know. It just came to my mind. Matriculate and, you know, and become engrossed with them and just, just enjoy the fun and the fellowship. But on a serious note... You know, the Apostle Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek and the geek and everybody else around the globe. And so we're going around the globe with the good news about Jesus. And the only way we can do it is when we have partners that join us and will partner with us and help us. Yeah, and join us April 20th through the 22nd. If you have further questions or would like to find out more information, you can call Mary at 314-996-1518. We know you're going to be proud to wear all of that KFU swag, but you're going to be even prouder to know that you're helping share this good news with the entire world through the ministry here at Worldwide KFUO. If you love Cross Defense, and I know you do, you definitely need to tune in April 20th through the 22nd and participate in this year's share Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, 
trying to demolish your human worldview and set in its place the strong foundation, the mighty fortress of our Lord's own worldview. It is everlasting in itself. It's never going to break because it is true eternally. It's the foundation, the pillar, the buttress of all truth. Talking today about how... Letting go of the Word of God takes away the gospel from you. And Dr. Francis Pieper, in volume one of his dogmatics, using, well, the Roman Catholics as a bit of a punching bag, he's kind of saying, well, look, here, here's an example of how this happens. Talking with Pastor Samuel Schulteis of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach, California. And we're around page 24 right now of Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, volume one, looking at a footnote which is you know a little bit that didn't make it in the main text. It's down at the bottom of the page, which is a quote. It's actually three quotes from the Council of Trent, which was, maybe we should do a little history of this. This was the council that responded to the Lutheran Reformation. So after the Reformation is taking place, after the the Lutherans are, are actually saying, we would like a council, we would like a council. We, we, we don't just want to be blanketly condemned. Let's let all Christianity come together and look at the scriptures and decide this issue of justification from scripture alone. Rome, after Luther's death, eventually does have a council, but they don't invite any of the Lutherans to it, and they use it as a chance to solidify many of the errors, which were only several hundred years old. These aren't ancient errors necessarily in the Roman church, but they solidified them by making them official doctrine, because the council cannot err. It, it makes a, a permanent claim, a permanent mark on the church, and that, that Trentine uh, set of statements really ruled the church for quite a long time. There have been two other councils, if I'm getting it right, since then, uh, Vatican I and Vatican II, and there are those who will say that Vatican II is not exactly in agreement with Vatican I and, and Trent. Nonetheless, nobody's recanted Trent, and so it still stands. Uh, well, these several statements that we were looking at, we're going to look at them again here, uh, but effectively that Lutheranism, if you can call it that, which is just the scriptural teaching of salvation by grace alone through Christ, it, it stands condemned. Uh, so, Sam, do you mind if we just kind of go back and look at these one by one and try to kind of pull out what the real teaching is? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Uh, he's got three little separate canons there that uh, he quotes from Trent, and each one obviously says essentially the same thing, but in different ways and uh, kind of adds to the intensity of the anathemas there. Well, and also I think it'll help illustrate how they're using the word grace differently. So the first one, if anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation, and we should maybe talk about that word, of the justice of Christ, or the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost, um, let him be anathema. So the, the idea there is that if you say that is just the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you, if you say that it is just the remission of your sins and not also, and for for the Roman Catholic, grace is different. Grace is not the favor of God. Grace is like super juice. It's Holy Spirit super juice that's poured into you that allows you to love. And so they're saying if you're you're justified apart from that super juice ability to love we call grace, well, then you're anathema. Yeah, I remember going back to my uh, doctrine classes uh, at Irvine again, Dr. Rosenblatt always told us uh, talked about grace as a substance in, uh, in Roman Catholicism, right. especially in, in Trent's doctrine here. Uh, it, he, the image that uh, comes to mind is like, a, you know, like an empty bathtub, and then you, know, you got your uh, hole at the end where it drains out, and you know, every week you go up to church, or every day you go to church, and you fill up your bathtub again with grace, and throughout the week it's going to drain again. And then you've got to go back each week, and so you can, you can get fill up. It, you know, the, the opposite of imputation, which is what the Lutherans uh, held to out of Scripture, is this idea of grace being infused, sort of like an inoculation that you get. And then, but the problem is you have to keep going back and getting it uh, because you keep messing up, uh, which is different than being imputed constantly 
because you mess up. Uh, it, it it dwells on it dwells in and uh, fits in with your inward movements uh, of your you know your will, your heart, and, and so forth. Well, it's it's the power by which you're going to do the good works that actually merit salvation, right? And and so yep. that's that's what's coming out of this. I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea that our faith needs to be fed, uh, that without the no, Holy definitely. Spirit continually yeah. preaching to me, right? But that's not what they're talking about. They're actually talking about the power to become righteous in and of yourself. Yep. Yeah. Again, using the using the grace as a again not a not a disposition of God towards you, right? But rather more like a more like a rung on a ladder that you use to then climb up or uh, you know work your way up the the rock climbing wall. And you mentioning disposition. I mean, that's so key there because they also say you know even if someone should say that grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Mm-hmm. But that that's exactly it. God's disposition because of Jesus, God is happy with you. That's what Scripture mm-hmm. teaches. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He looks at you and does not see, does not see the the sin and the stain and the death and the disgustingness that that we are by a sinful nature. He only sees Christ on the cross. He only sees the blood covering and atoning for us. And you know, God was in Christ reconciling the world of Himself, not counting our trespasses against us. That's that's the favor of God. That's His disposition, His favor towards us. But if you believe that, according to Trent, you're not a Christian. And this is what, listener, you just got to get this through your head. If you believe that. According to this Council of Trent official Roman Catholic teaching, you're not a Christian. It's not even like you're maybe a Christian. You're not a Christian. You're not going to heaven. You're not going to rise on the last day. You are anathema. You are condemned to hell. You're a heretic of the worst possible kind. This is why Luthers are like, this is maybe the teaching of the Antichrist. <laughs> right? right? You've, right. you've, you've yeah, anathematized right. the gospel. Yeah, and it's why uh, you know Martin Chemnitz, the, the second Martin, after uh, Martin Luther uh, came along, he wrote four massive volumes examining the Council of Trent, uh, and spent a lot of time on this section in particular. So, again, condemned. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake. I mean, they, they yeah. did understand what they were condemning. I mean, they got the words exactly right. Oh, yeah, they nailed it. Nailed it on the head, right? I, I mean— because if you don't have confidence in divine mercy, uh, you really only have a couple other places to go. You know, your emotions, your works, uh, your your reason. But these aren't stable places to put your confidence in. You know, your reason you may give out. It's not going to be able to hold or understand or contain everything. And your emotions, well, they're going to go up and down too. And, and your works, well, that's going to lead to ultimately to despair. I mean, Phariseeism maybe for a while, but that's not going to hold out for too long either. Because you're eventually going to come to the point where you realize. I, I can't do this. I can't keep up. This is too great of a weight, too big of a demand. And the final canon here, canon 20, if anyone saith that a man is a man who is justified is not bound to observe the commandments of God and of the church, and that's pretty important there. I mean, we we yeah, just talk about both those things. <laughs> um, but only to believe as if the gospel were only a bare and absolute promise of eternal life without the condition of observing the commandments. So you can hear them really trying to nail us as if we're saying that good works are, are like bad, right? Yeah, um, right, yeah. But Who then they're also— Lutherans? They don't talk about good works, yeah. But then they're also throwing in there this idea that, you know, they get to make up commandments. It's not just the Ten Commandments they're talking about. They're talking about relics and indulgences and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that short little phrase, and of the Church, is a pretty powerful statement because it that, in, that includes or opens up the door for a whole lot of different things that uh, popes and councils had— you know, approved and, and used and, you know, were widely popular and uh, well-known in Luther's day, especially. The cult of the saints, 
uh, priests not being able to marry, uh, distinctions of certain foods that you eat at various times, all of these things would have been included as commands of God by by the church stating them. And then on top of that, uh, you you even though you believe in Jesus, you need to observe perfectly now, move toward a perfect observance of the Ten Commandments because, and they're saying this, they're saying the gospel is not a bare absolute promise of eternal life. It is not the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it, as if indeed it were a bare promise, without the condition. So it, it's making the gospel really into another work of the law by saying you, the gospel alone isn't enough. What you need really is gospel plus you know, something else. Here, here's the commandments, and by the way, uh, here's the, the canons of the church too. Uh, you know, get cracking. <laughs> yeah, For, right. forgiveness gets you on the treadmill, but now you got to start mm-hmm. running, right? Yeah, yeah. So, from this position, uh, in uh, he continues on. I mean, we're really in the middle of a paragraph, but we we side tangented into that uh, that footnote. From this position, uh, Pieper continues. There are indeed Christians among Roman Catholics, for there are those who, in spiritual distress cast aside their good works and, in spite of the interdict of, quote-unquote, the Church, put their trust solely in the grace of God in Christ and are true members of the Holy Christian Church. So he wants it—and for the show, I want to make it just as clear as people wants to make it here—we're not saying Roman Catholics aren't Christians. We're saying yeah. that their Church teaches an anti-Christian teaching. Right, right. And I've met many, many Roman Catholics, and there's members of our own Church that have— Either family members or you know, close friends, and they've said the exact same thing. Like they don't, they don't believe any of that stuff. I said, "Well, that's good. I'm glad." Tell them to come to the Lutheran Church because then <laughs> you can believe it and and not have to worry about all the other stuff too. <laughs> you get the best of both worlds. <laughs> but uh, but at any rate, I, I mean, I'm glad that they ignore uh, or that you know God has closed their ears to that. Uh, that's a good thing. I think when it's, he says here in spiritual distress, he's also pointing out that you know, you can spend your whole life not eating fish on Fridays and, and doing all your masses, and then on your deathbed, when the priest comes and gives you the Lord's Supper and you see his crucifix, basically, trust in Jesus. I mean, it's possible right. to have that happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and even, I think a lot of folks, I, I know several uh, members here at our church anyway that have come to come to Redeemer, become Lutheran, because they were for a long time wrestling with that you know, trying to trying to do good works and trying to live that uh, live up to that demand of the law, but realized they couldn't, and it was you know they they describe it as terribly disheartening, terribly dis- you know, full of despair, and uh, there was a freedom that they found uh, in the Lutheran Church. Yet at the same time, they found enough that was familiar, um, that was not you know right. wasn't completely kooky for them. So it, it was. For them, it was a good thing. Roman Catholics, ex-Roman Catholics, I should say, make the happiest Lutherans. They, they really do. They're just always kind of so tickled to be where they are. Um, our apology, our doctrine, the apology of the Augsburg Confession, actually says the same thing. And, and so there's another footnote here where people are saying, look, we, we confess this. You, you can accuse us of saying that Roman Catholics aren't Christians, but you're just not listening. Because we actually we believe that they are, even though there is a massive, dangerous, false teaching running rampant through the heart of their church. So here's the quote from the Apology. It says, Even though popes or some theologians and monks in the church have taught us to seek remission of sins, grace, and righteousness through our own works, and to invent new forms of worship which have obscured the office of Christ and have made out of Christ not a propitiator and justifier but only a legislature, nevertheless, the knowledge of Christ has always remained with some godly persons. And this is doubly important in that we don't believe the church ever went away in the Middle Ages. As bad as it may have gotten, we don't believe that the Holy Christian Church ceased to exist underneath that Babylonian captivity, as Luther called it, of the Roman 
papist, papist tyranny. Right, yeah, there, there is, a, well, like in the Old Testament, uh, the Lord had promised Israel that even in the exile in uh, the, the geographical Babylon, that there would never be, uh, he would never leave his people without a remnant and without the promise. And, and throughout time we've seen that in different periods of history where the Church has you know, gone into darker periods of false teaching. There's always been those who have faithfully held to the Scriptures and faithfully uh, you know, received the Word and the sacrament and continued to teach that to the next generation, and so the Church has gone on, all, all the while fulfilling Jesus' promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against the Church, and that uh, you know, she is always held in his hand, and, and he is always with us. I remember a uh, a story. You got to always be careful with stories from the mission field because there's a lot of um, well anecdote that goes on there, and you don't always have it written down. But I remember a story about a pastor who was visiting some of the former Soviet bloc areas and uh, met a woman who who basically said. I want to be baptized. And he said, you're not? She said, no, we haven't had the church here for a very long time, but my mother always told me that one day uh, a pastor would come back and that when he did, I needed to have him baptize me because that was the promise of God. And, you know, so even there under a, a truly atheistic regime that stamped out Christianity in all of its visible manifestation, the faith in the Word of God continued and sought then that church again at its soon as possible opportunity. It's really kind of a cool story, you know, God willing that it be true. Yeah, yeah, you hear similar kinds of things from uh, you know, missionaries in China today and other uh, parts around the world where the gospel is not, uh, where it's not, able, not able to be freely preached uh, and taught as much as it is in the United States here where we live. Um, and I think a lot of those, yeah, a lot of them may, may be a uh, stretch of the truth, but a lot of them may also be real uh, real life examples of just how the word of god works you know it uh, it seems to all uh sight of the world to be gone or hidden or destroyed and yet like the seed in the ground that jesus talks about about himself and his own death and resurrection it uh, waits for the proper time and then it then it grows and sprouts and brings life this is a good like teaching moment in itself here like so you hear you hear a story from the mission field and, and what's your real test on whether or not you can believe it's true it's not whether or not someone said it happened or whether or not it even happened it's whether or not it agrees with what Scripture says, and, and Scripture says there'll be a remnant. So when you see or hear a story about a remnant, rejoice in that. Uh, when, you, yeah. when you see or hear a story about somebody finding golden plates buried in the ground and the angel Moroni giving him a new message, <laughs> well, maybe not so much. Yeah, you might want to put on your uh, your Lutheran radar a little bit and say, that doesn't quite, uh, it doesn't quite match up, yeah. <laughs> so we confess that there are definitely Roman Catholics who are Christians, even though the Roman dogma is an anti-Christian dogma. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, the fact remains that the Roman Catholic Church as such, meaning the institution, the organization, and its teaching, is a separate body destructive of the true Christianity because in the first place, its formal principle is unchristian. And uh, we you just can't go over that because, you know, I don't know who's listening to this right now live out there in St. Louis, but if you hear that, I mean, God, oh, that sounds like mean, doesn't it? It's just so mean of us to say that. It's pretty strong language, and, and something we're not not always used to. Um, but at the same time, uh, having just looked at what we looked at in uh, the councils of Trent, right. uh, how do you? How do? It, it's got to be either one or the other. <laughs> There's not too much middle ground there. Um, uh, it, it, and where the where the formal principle is uh, off, then the rest of the you know it's going to follow suit. The rest of the teaching, the material principle, the, the center of it all, is going to follow the formal principle, and you're going to end up, you know, in a, in a bad place. You know, it's, a, it's a domino that 
ticks down all the other dominoes. The next sentence is really key to understanding then what he's saying too. You know, he calls the Roman church a destructive body to true Christianity because its formal principle is off. What does it mean by saying that? He says that means by making the decrees of the church the source and basis of religious knowledge, it therefore, I mean, it has to, suppresses the word of Christ, the word of the prophets and apostles, the scripture. You can't have two masters. Right. Yeah, you will uh, love one or hate the other. Yeah. So Luther then gives us an exact description of the situation when he says in the small quote articles, Pieper goes on to say, the Pope boasts that all right, all rights exist in the shrine of his heart, and whatever he decides and commands within his church is spirit and right, even though it is above and contrary to Scripture and the spoken word. Now, today's Pope maybe isn't doing that as, as boldly, although on the issue of marriage, you know, who's to say? Um, he, even he says he's not to judge. Um, but uh, certainly in Luther's day, at the time of, of the Reformation, I mean, they were militantly aggressive, violently aggressive on this, on this point. Yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was strong militaristic language they used in their, in their own writing and their councils, but then they also physically took up arms, too, and tried to, and in many places did, stamp out uh, the Lutheran Reformation, not just by means of written force, but by means of military force. And to do so, to even enforce on other groups these newly created forms of worship, and the Mass being kind of centered of that, but what was it? The Augsburg Interim is when the is after Luther's death. You have there's a, a war, and some of the Lutheran princes end up losing the battle, and mm-hmm. so there, Rome is able to impose by the sword the reinstitution of certain things like the sacrifice of the mass, like the worship of the saints. They impose it by the sword on the Lutherans, and so you can't really get too mad at us for kind of saying we don't want to go back to that and that we think it's wrong, even if today you know American Roman Catholicism is a bit more fluffy and and progressive. Yeah, you, you don't see any uh, small cold wars happening anytime soon in the United States, which is, you know, thank God, a good thing. We don't want to, we won't, don't want to have to go back to that. Uh, but at the same time, we have to look at the reality of those, you know, behind those historical events, and what was behind the military action was this teaching. You know, the words led to action. So, again, back to the point that we were making earlier is that words have consequences. You know, teaching, especially false teachings, have dire consequences for, you know, for small towns, for whole church bodies, for families, for congregations, for communities, all these things are affecting it. Nobody gets uh, left out of the dust when false teaching happens, right? It's not an innocent crime. Uh, it's not a victimless crime to, to have these false teachings go around. So this is why it's good to highlight them, to to discuss them and show them and uh, you know, reveal them rather than you know, bury it under and just pretend it doesn't exist. It was an eye-opening moment for me listening to Pastor Todd Wilkin uh, years ago when I was at seminary. I remember, I remember exactly where I was. I was driving in my car away from uh, Peterson Fieldhouse, the gymnasium at St. Louis Seminary, listening to, to Pastor Todd Wilkin talk to a caller who had called in to say that uh, recently a Pentecostal preacher on the television had made a proclamation of healing for people with certain illnesses, and it happened to be this individual's illness— and told them that now, by a word from God, he knew who they were, and, and they were healed. And so this individual threw away their medicine and then hmm. proceeded to be taken to the emergency room because they didn't have their medicine, and, and they nearly died as a result. And they're talking to, to, to Todd Wilkin about this, and as soon as they finish, Todd just says, false teaching hurts people. 
And yeah. it just stunned me. Like, yeah, that's exactly it. It's not, I mean, it is about eternal salvation too, <laughs> but like sure, in the course. present, it, it, it divides and causes harm by making false promises. Yeah, yeah. It also has very real temporal consequences too, you know, and very real practical things. Uh, you know, good theology is one of the most practical things you can have, uh, not just because of the eternal consequences of it, but because of real life, everyday Christian life, you know, the life we live in our vocation, our calling, wherever it may be, you know, these kinds of things give us give us the proper worldview. You know, it's what the, what this show is all about, uh, giving us the worldview of the scriptures so that we can then go and and live that Christian life uh, and speak those words of truth to those who need it, especially, you know, those who are, uh, you know, stuck maybe in a, in a church where they're not hearing good news, or maybe they're not in a church at all and they need to hear good news, and all they're getting is the world's version of, you know, fake good news. Uh, that's not going to bring anybody any comfort or confidence either. It's just going to go back to, like Peter said earlier, uh, back to a religion of the law. We have the gospel. Let's, uh, let's get about sharing that. So we got one small little paragraph left, and it's, it's interesting. He spends all this time on the formal principle, that is, what the Roman Catholic Church actually says they believe. Now he's going to talk real briefly about the material principle, that is, what they practice. So secondly, its material principle is unchristian, for in thus setting aside Scripture, Roman Catholicism, in fact, prescribes the Christian doctrine of grace, that is, gets rid of the Christian doctrine of grace. The whole colossal machinery of Romanism is geared to establish the absolute authority of the Pope, and to serve the religion of works, remove these two factors, and the Romans group would disappear from visible Christendom. We're just about two minutes left there. Go anywhere you want with that one. Sure. I mean, Luther made that same comment in the small called articles. He said, you know, if, by hypothetical example, if the Pope were to give up this teaching of works and this whole system of penance that had been built, uh, then the whole thing would crumble. He said, of course, he's not going to do that, because, you know, in part it came down to the power uh, question and the authority that uh, he would have to relinquish, uh, but would not. So it it wouldn't happen, and that's why that was why there was irreconcilable differences then. Um, it reminds me of a, a little bit of a quote from I think I, I pulled this uh, one point from uh, for a presentation from the Small Catechism or the Catechism of the Catholic Church that uh, they talk about uh, being progressively justified, right? That uh, we're made just, and that we we enter into this, you know, the treadmill image that we talked about earlier. We're the hamster, and uh, justification and grace are these uh, really the vehicles by which we we cooperate with God, we work with God in this system, and uh, th- there's no there's no comfort, there's no assurance there because you never know if you're up the ladder high enough, or if you've spun the wheel long enough, or if you've worked hard enough. Um, rather. Uh, you know, in the Augsburg Confession, in the Scriptures, we have this utter confidence that grace indeed is this this bare promise that says, you know, it, it really is Christ alone, and nothing but the blood of Jesus gets you into heaven. And uh, thank God for that, because otherwise we'd all be really tired hamsters. <laughs> my, my, my guest, Pastor Samuel Schulteis of uh, Redeemer Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach, California, uh, writer, fan of all things fantasy, including Tolkien in St. Louis, and now apparently hamsters as well. Uh, <laughs> thank you for being with us today, Pastor Schulteis. Gladly. Good to be with you as always, and a blessed day to all the listeners out there. 
You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news, and we certainly hope that you have heard that good news in this last hour. Cross Defense is underwritten for you by the Luther Academy. You should really check them out, lutheracademy.com. They're doing amazing work translating all across the world. Just recently did an interview with them uh, and the work they're doing in Mongolia, a country that hasn't had Christianity in it until just the last 20 years. And now you got a Lutheran pastor translating the Lutheran Catechism. Uh, you can check that out um, at lutheracademy.com. Get in touch with them. Let them know how much you care about the work they're doing including bringing you cross-defense here on Worldwide KFUO. Look, if you're, if you're a Roman Catholic and you listen this far, God bless you. If you've got friends and family that are Roman Catholics and you want to talk to them, well, God bless you too. It, it doesn't do us any good to pretend the divisions in the church aren't there. We're never going to overcome the lies of the devil, which must there must be lies from the devil if the church is divided. Either we're wrong or they're wrong, right? I mean, you can't have everybody be right You're never going to overcome those divisions if you can't admit they're there and then go back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture really say? And if if the main division is, well, you don't need Scripture, you need the church instead, well— that we have to go back to Scripture and see what the Scripture says about that. It's funny, you know, There's you can even find plenty of quotes from the Church Fathers about how Scripture is the sole rule and norm. And for us Lutherans, it's, it's never really about just Scripture for itself. I mean, that is the foundation of the truth in terms of what God has left us to know and to believe. But once you get rid of Scripture, the problem is then you get rid of the Gospel. And that's the other thing, our, our concern with our brothers in Rome who excommunicated us for believing the Gospel, uh, is that they've, they've lost that Gospel. And we don't want to lose it again. Having discovered... The free disposition of God. I mean, I'm going to use their own words here. Having discovered the sole imputation of the righteousness of Christ, the sole remission of sins, having discovered that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in God's mercy, and that this confidence alone is whereby we are justified, having rediscovered that man is justified perfect and not bound to obey the commandments of God as if indeed you needed some condition, but that the gospel is the bare and absolute promise of eternal life. Having discovered that from the scriptures, knowing that's who Jesus is and what he's done, man, we don't want to let go of that. We're never going to. We're going to apologize for it, defend it, even to the day we see Jesus return, because we intend in that faith to stand on that day and to plead, not guilty, but innocent in the name of Jesus. Thanks be to God for that. You're listening to Cross Defense one more time. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.